On this show, we talk to Kath Bishop, former Olympian and diplomat in some of the world's most challenging regions, about her ideas on how leadership needs to evolve past its obsession with short-termism. Kath's passion for finding more purpose and meaning in work shines out in this inspiring show. You're listening to The Evolving Leader. Scott Allender here, along with the most respected man in all of his house, Jean Gomes. <laughs> Again, God, the insults come flying thick and fast today. <laughs> it's a How are you feeling? <laughs> no, all right. If it makes you feel any better, I'm the only man in my house, and I don't think I could win that title. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm the only man in my house as well at the moment. Um, <laughs> How are you feeling, John? I'm feeling uh, pretty good, given everything that's going on, but uh, a little bit conflicted about the, the holiday season ahead and all of the uncertainty that that invokes. We've been running a very safe uh, kind of agenda, uh, both at work and at home, for the last nine, ten months, and it feels like it will all go a little bit um, on its head if we're not careful uh, over Christmas. So I'm feeling a bit anxious around that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I resonate with that. Um I'm feeling, at the time we're recording this, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic as well. Um, I think we've had some, you know, we, we finally, we got the vaccine arrived in the U.S. for the first time, and the, those are being deployed, and um, we had the uh, the election confirmation of um, the Electoral College and, and just some things that, that sort of kind of show that there's a, a new direction ahead and that 2021, um, we're going to make some real progress, so I'm I'm holding those things in tension where I'm feeling a little bit of that anxiety, but also some of that optimism. Well, that's good to hear. And what's going to make us feel even better is our guest today, um, Kath Bishop, um, former Olympic rower, conflict diplomat, author, leadership coach, and all-around brilliant person. Kath, welcome. Great to be here. How are you feeling? Uh, Probably sharing a lot of that. Um, actually, it's interesting that the kind of the, the new vaccine, some of the changes, I think, draw us more into the future, more into thinking, oh, gosh, what's happening there? And as soon as we do that, then then almost there's an anxiety from just dealing with, you know, where we are now, staying in the present, working out what, what I've got to do. And, and, and so I share almost that, that, that shared that increased uncertainty that that's because we're being drawn into starting to predict what might happen with the vaccine or what might change. Um, and actually, we just got to sort out what we can do this week that's within our control. Yeah, I, should, I agree with that because uh, I think it was probably about April or May. I don't, can't remember exactly where I and my family and, and seemingly people around me all come to terms with the the, the new normal. And we actually is quite, you know, quite nice. We had a bit of certainty for a period of time, which is a strange, it's a strange uh, phenomenon, isn't it? How you could feel good in that kind of circumstance. It's interesting question of our relationship to uncertainty and how we manage that, how aware we are of it. And 2020 has given us a totally different lens on it. Um, and, and to think about how much do we need it, how much certainty is okay and how much uncertainty throws us off. And almost that's a conversation I don't think we've been very well equipped to have. And so we are slightly novice in the way that we are learning to deal with it. And, and actually that's a sort of lesson that should be coming into education, shouldn't it? There should be a concept for leaders to be learning about what does uncertainty mean and how do you manage it? And when in your life have you managed it well or not? And it's just a whole new conversation piece. Mm. So, Kath, welcome to the show. So, I was—I I want to come back to that what you just started on, but let's let's get some building blocks for your career if we could, and then I'd like to I'd like to come back around to to the uncertainty and kind of what your emotional experience of the the COVID 
COVID experience has been and, and how that's impacted your work and all of that. But first of all, let me just uh, echo John. Welcome to the show. And I, and I do want to say from the onset, as a former diplomat with more than a decade of specializing in resolving really intense conflict issues in places like Bosnia and Iraq, the real reason we invited you on the show today is to help John and myself deal with some of our own interpersonal conflicts. So <laughs> we're, we're gonna... <laughs> we'll at least come back around to that. Okay. Enough oh, of my, enough of my con. <laughs> so um, I, I'd love to, I'd love to, uh, to just start. You, you were, you were a, an Olympic uh, athlete. And so if we could just start maybe there um, and then we can get into how you transitioned into your diplomat role, perhaps. Sure. Um, I mean, in, in terms of my Olympic experience, I was I went to three Olympic Games and I think through that decade, I also experienced quite a shift both in my own understanding of what high performance means and high performance sport and the purpose, why we do it, um, as well as being um, aware of a shift that was happening around me in terms of sports culture, in terms of, you know, both the quality in sport and, and how we understand um, sports psychology to to be helping athletes to improve their performance so you know it, 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 what did that look like when I started off it was you know, in the mid 90s it was a very kind of macho dominated world of who's the toughest who's the physically strongest who's got the will to win and sports psychology was really just around this kind of mythical elusive will to win unless you've got it and you are the winner in which case you you know you know how to do this and I can remember tying myself in knots around this do I have the will to win I, I think I do but what if I don't and um, what do I do to get it and and of course all the time I was worrying about that I wasn't making my boat go any faster and so, you know, I felt I had to kind of learn that that language of who's the toughest, who's who's kind of can withstand anything that's thrown at them. And yet, you know, I wasn't getting the performances that seemed to uh, to, to, to match the potential that I had. And it was really in the latter part of my career where there was much more of a, a performance approach coming through sports psychology, where we separate out the concepts of the performance that you're responsible for and the results you get. I, you cannot control the results because they're dependent on so many external factors, not least your competitors, but also elements of luck, elements of decisions by umpires, referees, and in fact, whether there's a competition at all, which in 2020, a global health pandemic has removed the opportunity of getting a result. But what you can be responsible for as an athlete is your best performance and always stretching that, always exploring your potential. And, and this kind of releases you from the obsession with, you know, uh, am I going to win or not? And actually allows you to focus on doing all the things that will make you go faster and optimize the chances of, of that. But that separation I found really transformational in my own performance. It freed me to focus on the things that were going to help me to go faster, to acknowledge the kind of areas that weren't so strong, to be, to be vulnerable, to, to think about what are all the different aspects that I can develop rather than every day I've got to prove I'm the toughest person here, which just wasn't helpful over the longer term. So that kind of journey in itself was a sort of micro version almost of what I've also seen happening in the other environments, whether it was working as a, a, a diplomat or now in my kind of leadership coaching work where you know that there's a kind of you start off thinking these things are critical to success quite a narrow set of things often externally imposed measures and then starting to realize hang on there's a much deeper level that we need to unlock if we're going to explore what's possible can you talk us through what happened to you um in the course of the first two olympics because and when, when did this uh, this separation 
you know, this idea of separating the two aspects of it, because in the, I, I think in the, the kind of Steve Redgrave era of, of men's rowing, that was very much um, the, the kind of mentality around that the whole programs were designed around him and what he could tolerate rather than, when, when did that change? Talk us through what, what the, the kind of chronology of those two Olympics first. So look, I, I, that, that mentality, that culture is still present in sport. It's not as dominant as it was, but it, it's still part of our culture. It's still part of Hollywood films around sports stars or themes beyond sports. So, you know, part of that is really what I wanted to challenge in my book, The Long Wind, to help us to dispel that myth a bit quicker. It, it works for a few people and it works for often those outstanding heroes but it's not generally a good strategy for the majority of people or for supporting, you know, all, all, all of us good, all, normal, ordinary people who need to work in teams to achieve what we want to achieve, who can't do it simply by being an outstanding individual. Um, and it, so my first Olympics that I went to in Atlanta, I came seventh. It was a learning process. And I thought, well, I'm still getting to terms with what's required to be tough and to be strong in this world. But OK, I can I can do this. I'm going to go to the next Olympics. I'm going to do another four years of training three times a day, seven days a week, 49 weeks of a year. You know, so I did all that and nobody could have been tougher. And by that measure of, you know, who's the last woman standing and, and who's going to get all the training done? You know, I was I was top of the rankings. But when it came to that Olympics, you know, I finished ninth. And that caused a big crisis for me because, you know, I had done all of this training to a very high uh, standard. I had physiologically moved on. So my strength, my endurance, my power, all of those measures had moved on brilliantly. But, you know, that kind of forced me to see that performance was broader than that and to start realizing there were aspects that I hadn't developed um, or hadn't had space to develop that were important for me to unlock a fuller performance or to, to unlock kind of the rest of my potential. And so by taking a step back, by talking to some different people and by also understanding now this sports psychology shift, I started to, to kind of realize that I could develop in different ways. So particularly my mindset was a big area that I just hadn't invested in beyond that kind of initial who's the toughest piece. I hadn't really explored different ways of thinking, of stretching myself, of challenging myself. To, you know, to, to, to work in different ways, to work with others, to be open to different perspectives, rather than just improving myself all the time, to be improving myself in a, in a much broader set of ways. And it was a sports psychologist that really helped me to reframe things when I then came back for that third Olympics. And in particular, you know, actually to, to kind of move away from the result, because to come back again after that kind of critical uh, crisis moment, if you like, of coming ninth, you know, I had to recognize that I could come ninth again. You know, it's perfectly possible. I could come ninth or even 10th or even 11th or even 12th. And that's how many places there were to, to um, qualify for at the Olympics. And, and I also now knew that people who came ninth could be incredibly committed and dedicated and with great potential. <laughs> Um, and so I sort of saw it in a very different light and I stopped demonizing that, if you like, and thought, well, I still want to win. I still want to do as well as I possibly can. But I have to accept that there's possibility that I could come in any of these other places and really, really good people will. And it's important that we have all those good people in all those other places because that's what allows us all to kind of use each other to move on. So rather than fearing that, actually kind of seeing that as that's what's going to help me to perform, 
and to also think about reframing it in a different way so that it wasn't only about the result. Because at that point, I might not get selected again. You know, I might be injured and I certainly might not win. So the psychologist asked me, what else are you going to gain if you come back and go to a third Olympics? And that question to me was unbelievably helpful. And it's a question I use now in coaching. You know, if you're not going to hit the metrics you want to hit, and in 2020, hardly anyone is, what else have you gained from this year? And that was what I went back into that Athens Olympics with the mentality of, what are the things on a daily basis that I'm gaining, even if I'm not top of the rankings? You know, even if I've had a, a kind of you know, poor day in terms of boat speed, what are the other elements that I'm developing in terms of my mindset, how I'm managing pressure, how I'm managing failure, how I'm connecting and communicating with those around me? And that broadened out the set of areas that I was developing on a daily basis, which then, of course, contributed to my performance on the water and led to me getting the best results of my career. So anybody listening to this um, thinking, so... This woman was chosen three times to represent a country in the Olympics. That, that, that's a monumental achievement, puts you into this tiny, tiny elite group of people. Um, and they're, they're probably listening and thinking, my, my goodness, what is going through your mind when you, uh, you know, you're, you're at the start line for all of this? And, and when you got to Athens and you won silver with Catherine Granger, can we just talk a little bit about the mindset from an emotional point of view? Because we, we like to think of mindset as this kind of interplay between emotions and thoughts and, and the way you're framing the world. What was going on emotionally for you that allowed you to move past the crisis other than just separating mm. things? Because you must still be confronting an awful lot of fear and uncertainty in that situation. So there was one really key difference in how I'd sat on the start line in Atlanta, and particularly in Sydney. I had sat there feeling... I've got to win. I want to win. I need to win. I've got to win. And that was certainly a place that contained quite a lot of fear and uh, tension and a, a negative sense of pressure. When I sat on the start line in Athens, I felt I'm here and I've got an opportunity to deliver my best performance. And that requires me to execute all of the things I've been developing um, over the last few years. And I've got seven minute window of opportunity to do that. And there's some positive pressure there. This is the time to bring it all out. But I wasn't thinking about the result. I wanted that result, you know, at, at one level, you know, it's not, it's not gone away, but it is not at all my dominant thought. You know, I'm also sitting there going, it's perfectly possible. I'm not going to win this. I want to. But what I've got to focus on is delivering that best performance. And that requires me to be absolutely focused on the first stroke, on getting straight into the rhythm, on all of those things then that, that you've trained and that flow out. And it's a liberating thought to sit there going, I really want to bring my best rather than I've got to win. Those are worlds apart in terms of the experience. One you want to run away from. And the other one, you, you, you want to get on with and try it out and bring it on and, and give it a go. That's really interesting and quite extraordinary, the difference between those two things. So in the first scenario where you're, where you're feeling the fear, can you really focus on all that plan that you've got for that seven minutes in the way that you can in the other way? I mean, it doesn't sound like you could. No, and, and, and that's why the performance didn't come. And that's why sports psychologists make this separation and develop this whole body of performance mindset thinking. And it, it comes from the daily training as well. So the experience of those two Olympiads was very different. 
it looked the same externally. You could go, well, you're training six hours a day, three sessions, seven days a week. It's blimmin' tough. You, you know, the hours I train, none of that changed. But the experience at the end of the day, the interpretation of that was very different. So in the first scenario, at the end of the day, essentially the coach was sort of saying, you know, this is the rankings. You're at the top. You better stay there. And I'd go home again full of fear, thinking, my God, I can't try any harder. What if I'm not there tomorrow? Or you're at the bottom of the rankings and the coach is going, you better go faster tomorrow or you're going to get dropped. And you go home full of fear, thinking, I can't try any harder. Um, you know, whereas in that, in that final Olympiad, um, we're still being measured. There still is a ranking, but the interpretation is not focusing on that. It's actually saying today, these are the things you've done well. You need to keep doing those. This is what I want you to really look on improving tomorrow. And this is how we're going to do it. And that's regardless of whether you're the top or the bottom of the rankings. So we're maximizing everybody's focus and the, the focus is on improvement, not ranking. And again, the experience is different because you go home, you think, oh, you know, I'm at the bottom, but these are things I need to do to improve, you know, or you go, well, I'm at the top and, and this is what I'm going to do that's going to help me, you know, the best chances of staying there. And the experience is totally different. The quality of sleep, the quality of, you know, of, of that kind of that time you have in between the next session and just managing the fatigue. It's totally different. I love that, that whole lesson and, and analogy about not analogy, that whole illustration about focusing on what you can control and, and the result not being one of those. I'd like to come back to that in, in a bit when we, when we shift into your, your leadership coaching work. But can we take a, take a shift over to your, um, your work as a diplomat? Because um, I'm really curious how you got into that. I'm sure that's not a role that's posted on LinkedIn. I've not seen one. Um, but how did, how did you make that transition? And, and, and tell us a little bit about that part of your life. So I actually always wanted to become a diplomat. It was part of, it was something that I was very interested in. Um, I studied languages and international politics, and that's something I actually intended to do after university. So it's more a question of how did somebody want to become a diplomat, go on this kind of crazy sporting journey, rather than how did the athlete become the diplomat? You know, it, that was mm. almost the thing that was there first. Mm. And then I found rowing at university, and that took me off on this incredible tangent this incredible journey but I had ah. continued some postgraduate study whilst I was doing that and um, you know actually after the crisis of Sydney thought well maybe this is time to take a different path you know I, I, maybe I've gone as far as I can let's see if this other door opens because I'm getting older now let's see if it's a possibility still um, and so I took a year out of the sport then I thought I'd retired and that's when I joined the foreign office and of course, that year out was brilliant. I was just curious, what was drawing you to that from the beginning? Like what compelled you to this desire? So I studied modern languages, loved living abroad, loved living uh, and experiencing different cultures and learning the language side of that. So, you know, all of my studies around, you know, history and literature had given me that broader perspective of different ways of seeing the world. And I think I had always been fascinated by that. My master's in international politics sort of gave me even more inroads into yeah, the, the international system and how it works. Um, and I think I, there's something fascinating about foreign policy. There's, there's almost nothing more, more fascinating than the ultimate um, endpoint of human behavior on a massive scale. These intractable disputes that are irrational um, but still continue that we can't solve, whether it's 
you know, the Middle East peace process or any number of conflicts around the world. So there's something about human nature, the human behavior side of that, that I think fascinated me as well as understanding, you know, the why, the politics, the history, how do we get to this point? And, and how can we get to a better point? That sense of there must be a better way for us to organize ourselves, work together. Um, you know, all of that I found and still find really, really fascinating. So you must have experienced some pretty intense situations. Did it turn out to be as you expected it to be? So I definitely got a whole different perspective that, you know, really blasted my mind, that rebalanced my mind from what was quite a, a, a narrow world as an Olympian of trying to make a boat go backwards on a lake somewhere, almost kind of, you know, apart from society, almost kind of isolated, to suddenly being thrust into the middle of what's happening in the world that, that does have greater significance than a boat going backwards. And so it was a really great blast of perspective into my mind, into my thinking. Um, what was interesting was most of the situations, all of the situations actually just came down to human behavior, human thinking. A lot of negotiating um, was, we would have reams of reading, technical uh, information on what we were negotiating. So it might be an EU directive, it might be a peace treaty, um, it might be reforming the security services in a, in a country that's recently had a civil war. So we would have a lot of technical data and a lot of stuff to read. But once you got into a negotiating room, it became about something else altogether. It became about the dynamic inside that room. It became about the personalities and mindsets, beliefs, assumptions, how we listened to each other, how we connected one with one another, how we found ways to create a path forwards that hadn't been there before, or how we failed to do that in, in mm. some circumstances. And that's where I got a completely different lens on this question of what, what are we aiming for? What does success look like? Am I defining it by um, you losing, so that zero-sum game thinking? And whenever we were in that scenario, it, it was a bad outcome because there's either no outcome that's acceptable or it's an imbalanced one that is not going to last because it's inherently somebody's losing out from it. So at some point, they're going to regather and, and come back and disrupt it again. And our job as diplomats, the, the real core that I felt the job was about was a psychological one of trying to shift people away from zero-sum game thinking into a collaborative mindset of how can we all be part of something where we all gain, but none of us gets exactly what we want, but we will all gain and be part of something bigger moving forward. And that sat at the heart of a lot of different situations, uh, almost every negotiation to some extent. And it made me come back to the, the psychology being, you know, what underpins um, so much of how things, how things pan out, how we define success and, and how we move forward together. I'm intrigued. I can't resist but ask you about your um, professional view on how Brexit negotiations are going right now, because it's very topical given the uh, the moment just before Christmas we're in and uh, our negotiation settlement uh, was supposed to be resolved fairly soon and it's been pushed back and pushed back. What, what, what do you see going on there? So it's a really, it's a really good example or a bad example uh, of binary thinking, of oppositional thinking, where it's one side trying to win against the other or each side trying to win against the other. And you see how badly that ends up for both sides and potentially unsustainably so. Um, from the start, the rhetoric has always been oppositional, has always been about winning and losing. And as soon as you get caught into that, 
then you narrow your space to maneuver. You narrow the parameters of what success could look like. You cut out some of that ability for collaboration, for creating a new path, and you get stuck in you know, a very narrow space. And you're, you're basically clashing over and over again. And what we've seen is almost that you know, we haven't really moved on in three years. It's remarkably similar to the way we started the debate, that started the negotiations. We haven't enabled ourselves to, to explore other areas because we trapped ourselves into this binary thinking. So it's very prevalent in our systems and you could actually see that the UK and the US are, are classic examples of, you know, the very fundamentals of our situation set us up one side versus the other. One has the answers. You can't want something that both want. No, that's impossible within our system. They can't both have elements that are good and elements that aren't so good. You kind of have to one by pack by one package or the other. Mm. And that's what's so unhelpful for a time um, of, of, you know, of our lives, of humanity, when we face complex issues, where there isn't a single solution, where there isn't a right answer. And surely exactly. it'd be so much better to pull the best ideas, pull them together um, and create a way forward that we can constantly uh, review and refine. And as we get more information, then we refine it again. Um, and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why um, quite intelligent people aren't attracted into politics because actually you want to find a sensible way forward. Um, that's almost not possible within the political structures that we set up, particularly in the UK and the US, where it's all about kind of winning and making your opposition look bad and you look better by them looking bad. And if they've got a great idea, you might think it's a fantastic idea, but you can't possibly support it because you'll somehow look weak and you'll, you'll lose in, in that kind of narrow win-lose mentality. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a lot of that thinking, and I think we are seeing poor consequences that come from that that are quite obvious to be seen, and yet our systems are kind of trapping us into, it's, it's that game or, or no game. You either opt out or you opt into being on one side or the other, and that's particularly frustrating because... Often you don't want to opt out, but I feel I can't just support one side or the other. And what is the other way? And, and is there another form of politics that will come? You know, are there other forms of politics happening elsewhere in some of the, the kind of political systems within Europe where actually they're, they're traditionally much more based on coalitions and collaborative thinking and, you know, some of the experiments with... Um, you know, civil, uh, different civil society groupings, um, you know, projects actually within Ireland where they are, you know, asking citizens to comment on some of these complex social issues so that there's a different way of influencing the debate and the way we go forward. So I look to some of those ideas because I think that's where we should be going in the future. And in all of these, uh, these scenarios that you were involved in as a, as a, a diplomat what, what did you learn about yourself uh oh that's a that's a uh, a deep question um that i need to to understand the assumptions and the biases that i take into all those negotiations um and that i need to uh take off that need to to feel like I've won by achieving X, Y, Z outcomes. Um, and, you know, it, as, as a diplomat, you're trying to get the best outcome for your country. 
and you know you're you're being judged on whether you get to, to to those sort of outcomes or not and and so it was about broadening that sense of how I might define success for myself what am I trying to explore what am I trying to learn in this process rather than you know how many marks out of 10 will I get for my negotiating skills you know to kind of move beyond that um, and you get very drawn into the, the the human connections in the room and again I think um, one of the things I loved about diplomacy was that challenge of how can I connect with the person that I feel least connected to in the room? Because I cannot get to that shared outcome without that. I love the phrase that Abraham Lincoln uses of, I don't like that man, I must get to know him more. Um, and that was one that I held close when I would sort of instinctively feel averse to someone's view. Uh, and to think, what? Why is it? Because that that person is inevitably going to be key to moving this this whole negotiation forward. And you know, setting myself that challenge of how can I connect with that person that I feel least connection towards. That that really was our job. And there was an ambassador very early on in 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 my career that I spoke to, very wise, eminent ambassador, who I asked for advice, and he said, you know, overcoming those. Um, inherent biases that you have is a really key part connecting with the person that you feel least connected to in the room is going to be your key to you know actually a achieving a, a, a good outcome from a negotiation and, and I like that now in the work that I do around bias around inclusion again it's helping us all to recognize um, how we might reach out to people that, that we somehow have that instinctive barrier against and I think it's something we could come um, across much earlier in our lives. I think this would be a useful skill in education for us to be thinking, um, gosh, that person sees the world differently from me. How, how interesting. Whereas I think nobody gave me a framework at school to understand that. And in fact, I don't like that person. They don't see the world the same as me. Therefore, somehow I deduced I don't like them. And, and I wish someone had sort of helped me to see that through a different lens. Because then much later in life, you know, I realized that that was something that, that was just, it just wasn't helping. And, and I'm a curious person. And actually, that fuels my curiosity hugely to see the world through someone else's eyes. If you're new to the Evolving Leader podcast, please subscribe to us on your favorite platform. We have many more thought-provoking and inspiring guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Let's turn to why you wrote your book, uh, The Long Win, which has garnered wonderful reviews, including being on the Financial Times list of best business books of the year. So congratulations on that. Uh, can you talk us through the central idea of the book? So this theme of winning, and winning in quite a narrow sense often, was something that came up in sport, in diplomacy, in terms of the outcomes of negotiations. Uh, within education, where we see it as bagging, you know, a handful of A star grades. And in business, where I see this language often used of we're winning, we need to be number one, again, quite a narrowly measured way. And I saw this recur in all of these scenarios. And I saw that the behaviors and the thinking that came out of it was quite dysfunctional and certainly holding people back from exploring their potential, from really looking at what's possible. And so the book is, is an exploration of our obsession with winning, defined in an often narrow and short-term way, a moment in time, crossing the line, getting a medal, standing on the podium for a minute at most, 
um, why don't we define success in a way that has longer meaning, longer term meaning for us, that lasts beyond a single moment in time when we hit our annual t results or reach a particular target. That actually doesn't lead us to feel fulfilled. Though I saw you know, a number of stories that come out all the time around sports stars who win, who feel unfulfilled and depressed, let alone those who are kind of disregarded and discarded along the way who finish lower down. I thought that well, doesn't feel like a good picture of success. What's going wrong here? Again, in business, I, I see companies wanting to win and yet having staff engagement scores that show really low level of engagement, a real low kind of belief in the leadership and how they're working as teams. So I thought something that's going wrong here and how we define winning, how we view it, and we need to redefine what success looks like. We need to be exploring a broader set of criteria that go beyond this short-term metric um, that look at purpose, that look at that longer-term impact that we want to have, that also brings much more of this performance mindset thinking, so focus on learning, constant learning, and mast a mastery mindset, if you like, rather than just these outcomes that are beyond our control often, um, and a focus on human connections, the collaboration piece, the connection that is the only way that we will ever uh, explore what's possible. We need to be doing it together. I love that. I imagine that in addition to what you just laid out for us, that both rowing and inter international diplomacy has some interesting intersections and analogies that shape the work you're doing now. Could you kind of pull that out for us a little bit further? So in both worlds, we are uh, seeing success um, in a very people-focused way, which I liked. So both, you know, rowing depended on crews, teams working together and understanding how they work together. And actually diplomacy is about building relationships and understanding the importance of nothing moves forward unless everybody's on side, unless everybody agrees that, unless everyone can buy into it and actually, you know, sell it and advocate it to their supporters, to their, to their group, to their voters, to their electorate. So the people focus of both worlds was um, something that, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from and it helped me to understand much more about what's going on, you know, beneath the surface in terms of the way people are thinking and feeling um, and the ability to discuss that and explore that and the way they then behave and connect with each other. So I think that focus on people, um, how teams work together was something that I saw both in a rowing team and the negotiating team. Um, they, they both gave me this lens also on the concept of winning. What does success look like? And I think in both careers, I went into it thinking, okay, well, what do I do to be successful? What have I got to do? And, you know, started off thinking in sport, it's about being the fittest, strongest person. And, you know, in diplomacy, started thinking, well, it's about how, how smart I am, how good I am at reading and understanding my technical, political, negotiating briefs. But in both of them realized it's, it's much more about understanding the psychology of what's at play, of connecting and developing the way people think and the way that they are then behaving and connecting. And so these themes of mindset, behavior and relationships as being absolutely critical to performance is something that I now bring into my coaching work, where again, often there's a, a focus that the organization brings on these external metrics, the stuff we can see, the spreadsheet, the figures we're getting, the targets. But all of that is driven by people's and the way they think, their mindsets, their behaviors, their relationships. And if we don't invest in those, develop those, and, and explore what's possible there, then we're actually minimizing the spreadsheet. 
But also if we look at the spreadsheet, we don't see any of that stuff. So we need to you know, expand what it is that we are, we are measuring, that we are taking in as, as important in achieving what we want to achieve. So I particularly want to attack this kind of world of metrics, I guess, as part of this, because it's our obsession with narrow metrics that, that forces us often to ignore those aspects of the way we think, behave and connect that aren't easy to put in a spreadsheet. But that doesn't mean they're not absolutely fundamental and of huge importance to the stuff that ends up in the spreadsheet. They're all behind the stuff that's in the spreadsheet, right? And is it, are you finding it challenging to persuade businesses that are focused on those external metrics without having given much thought to what's underneath? Or, or are you finding people becoming more open to that exploration as the world becomes less stable? So I think as soon as a company realizes there's a mismatch, if you like, we're trying to achieve these metrics, but we're not. We've got good people, but there's a gap somehow. Um, and we're trying to, you know, say we want to win more and we're trying to kind of have, have all the mission statement and have all the targets. We want to be number one. But that gap isn't closing. As soon as there's that sort of moment of going, mm, we're missing something, then there's an opportunity to move forward. So it, it's about companies realizing often that they need to raise performance and then not knowing how to motivate or overusing extrinsic motivation. So the rewards, the incentives, but not closing the gap. And then starting to explore, okay, maybe there's, there's an intrinsic world here that we completely ignored. So as soon as there's that realization that, you know, that the current ways of motivating aren't getting us to the point we need to get to, then there's an open door to start exploring this kind of stuff. But I think it's accelerated in 2020 without question, partly because we've often liberated ourselves from these metrics because we're not going to hit them. We're not going to reach them. We're not going to hit a lot of the targets for a vast amount of companies in 2020. And so now they're forced to ask the question of, well, what are we achieving? Why are we here? How do we adapt? What's our purpose for finding a different way of doing things? How do we look after our people? How do we actually value them in a different way and have some of those conversations we've never had before? We've never asked how they were before. And now we suddenly realize, actually, that's quite an important part of keeping our company together. So I do think that we, the 2020 has accelerated the thinking into the need to support people to understand and, and to look at other values that can show we've gained something from 2020, even if we haven't hit the narrow metrics. Actually, we've learned a lot. We've changed enormously. We've taken on board whole new ways of working. Uh, our people have often been very adaptive in lots of organizations, and it's those skills that will enable maybe us to, to go back to hitting some of the metrics in 2021. But the focus has come on that performance, if you like, in terms of what have people improved, what have they learned to do differently, and how have we connected to the real reason that we're here as a company and all of those factors are then you know hopefully going to stay as, as fundamentals in in how we move forward your lessons were many in, in olympic sport but when, when you stopped focusing on the result and started focusing on the things that you could control you got a better result how does that specifically translate into the work you're doing with businesses today and leaders today should they be focused on just the things they can control so to go back to the Olympic analogy, we would start to define success on a daily basis. So if I think about it, you know, uh, success at the end, it looks like, you know, going faster than the rest of the world and a lovely lake and it's sunny and lots of people are watching. And then on a 
dark day in, in the middle of the winter. It doesn't look anything like that. But I need to have a good day today. I need to maximize my improvement. So how am I going to define success on a daily basis, if you like? I need to think about all of the different elements of performance that I'll need. I won't just need to be super fit and strong. Actually, I'll need to have a, a peak level of communication with the people that I'm racing with I'll need to you know be I need to make sure I'm not injured along the way so I need to be looking after myself and, and maximizing that recovery piece the nutrition piece all of those things along the way and I build out if you like a, a picture of success criteria on a daily basis that aren't purely about boat speed because I need good communication well you know that might not make me go faster tomorrow but I will need that ultimately in two three four years time there's no way that I can perform without that so it encourages me to invest on a daily basis in broader criteria. And so translating that into the workplace, what do we look at? We think about if, if, you're, if, if it's in the leadership development scenario, what are all the factors you need in order to become the leader you want to be? Or like, okay, that, that, that's a whole range of things beyond what's needed to hit next quarter's results. But if we're not investing on that on a daily basis, if we're not investing in our storytelling skills, our communication skills, our you know, feedback, our ability to listen, our ability to motivate, our kind of ability to articulate and bring a purpose that has a meaning for people in the organization. If I'm not doing that on a daily basis, then I'm not going to become the best leader I can be. And I'm not supporting people around me and creating the environment that will allow them to thrive. So it's about defining, if you like, those performance criteria that may include some of the measurables, but, but go way beyond that for some of the other aspects that are less easy to measure, but absolute fundamental to where we want to get to. And then thinking, OK, so how can you make sure on every day I'm not just reviewing the tasks, the meetings I've been to, the action points that I've, that I've kind of actioned. Um, or, or given out I'm thinking about well you know who did I influence today who did I motivate who have I got on board with my ideas or who isn't quite on board who hasn't really bought into this who I need to kind of understand their perspective more and get get a sense of where they're coming from and why they find this difficult to buy into these are the things that determine the kind of longer term implementation of the strategy or the you know the, the actions we want to take towards that purpose far more than just well have I done what's on my outlook calendar so again it's about reprioritizing what are the things that are fundamental to that slightly longer term picture of success and including things that are less easy to measure I mean one of the questions I always use when, whenever there's a metric that's brought in is what isn't measured here that's going to be fundamental to you achieving this mm, I love that so so um just to, to to bring this together um, as our final question to you, um, you know, Scott and I have you know one of the motivations behind putting together this uh, this show was a feeling that the world needed more leadership, a different type of leadership, uh, one that could truly embrace the the biggest challenges facing the world, facing organisations, society at all its different levels. And your work is, and your, your worldview is, uh, is inspiring to us. Um, we're really interested to understand, you know, if you could get more people to think like this, um, uh, what, what does the world look like in 10, 15, 20 years' time? What, what, what kind of future are you trying to envisage for, for everybody? Mm. Um, and I, I love that question, and it is one that I spend a lot of time thinking about what's, what's possible. Um, and I, I also try not to be prescriptive about what's possible because I want to be in a world where we're actually all 
redefining and exploring that if you like so we are constantly pushing the barriers of what's possible we're challenging traditional structures we are um it it, it would be a world in which the education system is fundamentally changed so that we are enabled to we are able to develop in much broader ways the talent from a much earlier age that we are developing the way people think um you know we're thinking about that diversity and the inclusive environment you know at an educational stage we're valuing creativity we're not having this kind of narrow sense of assessing people so there'd be much less of a focus on assessment and much more of a focus on breadth of exploring what's possible so i would definitely be challenged it would be a world in which our education system would look quite different it would be much more collaborative process and much more explorative exploratory uh, experience that i think would set us up for the world of work which is um, fundamentally about exploring what's possible and managing uncertainty so that uncertainty needs to come into the education system so I would see a lot more collaborative working happening at school that would then help us to work more collaboratively at work. Because one of the challenges, a lot of teams really don't work well in the workplace. And then that's a very common theme that, that leaders will, will share with me and work with me on or, or bring to business school um, kind of courses and programs that I'm working on this sense that, you know, we know we're not maximizing the teams because actually all of the systems around this individualistic um, assessment of you know as one person what can you do it's just doesn't make sense for the big challenges we have so I would see much more of that collaborative working um, collaborative basis again you know across companies um, within communities uh, more of that you know breaking down the silos so that we um, are, are not as as, as as narrow in our lives so that we might also connect much more with our communities thinking about how our work translates to our communities how we can share those skills how again the work life and the education life can can link in much more um, so it's about breaking down boundaries I guess and making you know m making the world a lot less siloed well Kath I could listen to you all day Honestly, I love I love your insights and lessons you've learned that you've shared with us. So thank you so much. Um, I'm sure you've got other things to do with your day besides talk to us. So we'll 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 have to wrap it up. But um, thank you so much for coming on today. Great to be here. Really loved the conversation. Thank you. And as always, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>